Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to do our best to cover the first section of the war chapters, 43 through 52. There's a lot in here, isn't there, Bryce? This is the absolute gift of the Book of Mormon because we are engaged in a war against evil. This is the war that began in pre-mortal life. And so people who brush off the war chapters in the Book of Mormon don't understand that they're engaged in a war, and we have been handed the answers how Satan operates, the strategy. So such a beautiful time to realize, oh my goodness, this is how applicable the Book of Mormon is. Excellent, excellent. There's so much in here. What I thought we could do first, Bryce, is give a brief overview of these 20 chapters. This is like just a couple of minutes of, okay, what's in here? So in the 43rd chapter, the Zoramites, who we've struggled with, and they're on the border by the Lamanites, and we wanted to bring them to Christ, they are enemies. And so they join and unite with the Lamanites, led by a guy named Zarahemna, and they attack the Nephites, and they start losing, which at the end of the chapter... As they start losing, Moroni steps in in the 44th chapter and says, hey, let's stop killing them for a second, and what happens in chapter 44? So then Moroni's army surrounds them, gives them the option. You can, if you'll swear an an oath that you will not attack us, we'll let you go in peace. And Zarahemna says, I can't do that. I I just can't do that. And so Moroni picks up his sword, and there's just, just this defining moment. And he hands Zarahemna his sword and says, then we will end the conflict. That's a great line. And Zarahemla takes a swipe at him, and one of Moroni's men steps in, defends Moroni, and ends up scalping Zarahemna. And Moroni again gives him the choice. He says, look, this scalp, right? He holds up the scalp and says, this scalp, and this is what's going to happen to every one of you if you don't sign that commitment that you're not going to come back. And so many of them do sign, and then there's peace restored. So those first two chapters are kind of a separate piece, and we're going to take a look at how they apply to our lives. But that's kind of the battle with Zarahemna. And that's kind of the end of the first set of wars, and that's about 74 BC. The 45th chapter is like a pause, and we read about how Alma prophesies of the Nephite destruction, and then he's translated, and there's some cool stuff in there, especially regarding the Moses traditions. There's a lot of traditions outside of the biblical narrative that Moses was taken up by God, and so there's some cool stuff going on in the Bible that's missing and, and, and hints in there. And, you know, we assume that's going on. He prophesies of the Nephite destruction, which is interesting, which then leads to the beginning of the second set of wars with a guy by the name of Amalickiah in 46. So in 46, Amalickiah wants to be king. There's a vote taken. The vote comes against him. He and his followers get angry. They rebel. And Moroni steps forward and says, we've got to squash this rebellion. And so he writes the title of Liberty, and he pleads with everyone, hey, in in memory of our God, in memory of our wives, we've got to stop this. And this really is, of all the wars that Mormon includes in the Book of Mormon, this is the one to include because of the pattern with Lucifer. So chapter 46 kind of sets up, you know, who is the enemy and, and what did Amalickiah want? And just like Lucifer... It says in 46 that had Amalickiah been chosen as king, it would have destroyed the liberty of the people, just like Satan's plan was to destroy our agency. So it's starting to set this up and said, this guy is a real enemy. And now we find out exactly what his, you know, how he operates and what his method is in 47. Yep. He kills the king, marries the queen, becomes king of the Lamanites, 
we read in this chapter that he poisons Lahontai by degrees. And so we're going to get into that. We will what's, spend a lot of time in 47 because this is such an important... We must understand how Satan operates. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great chapter as far as application, multiple levels of, of applying this. Lahontai is on the mountain, and Malachi is like, why don't you just come off the mountain and we'll chat? So 47 is good stuff, which then leads up to 48. When he becomes the king, what does he do, Bryce? Now 48 is what's Moroni doing in the meantime. While Lahontai is doing that among the Lamanites, what's Moroni doing? And Moroni is preparing the minds of the people. Interesting that that would be his first approach. He's preparing the minds of the people to be faithful to God. And then he's building up all sorts of defenses. And then we just get this beautiful little look into Moroni's heart. Chapter 48 introduces us to one of the greatest men that has ever lived on this planet. Clearly, he was Mormon's hero, because look what he names his son, Moroni. I love, I think you'll all recognize, if all men had been and were and ever would be likened to Moroni, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. So chapter 48 is a beautiful look as to the foil of Malachiah, and that is Moroni. Then the battle begins in 49. Yeah, 49 is the second set of wars. So I call this the Malachiahite Wars, and this is where the Lamanites cannot get inside the Nephite fortifications. They try and try and try as they might, they can't. But now, in the first set of battles, the Nephites had armor. Now the Lamanites show up, and they've got armor. But they can't get in. And we read in the 23rd verse that not a single Nephite was slain. Now, when you think about war and casualties and kind of how this plays out, if one side has not one loss, that's a brilliant victory. So I I have in bold here, huge victory for the Nephites. Now, one thing, a pattern you're going to see in these war chapters is, The Lamanites are always going to learn, and they're going to adapt. And so that's another theme that's woven through here, is this idea of adaptation in the midst of conflict. And so great victory for the Lamanites, which then leads into Alma 50. So in 49, verse 23, it says, The Nephites had all power over their enemies. So the Lamanites attacked their weakest city and got slaughtered. So how long should this war have lasted? If they attacked the weakest city and got slaughtered, This war should have been over in a day or a month, but the Nephites do two stupid things that basically open the front door to the enemy, and it's the same stupid things that Latter-day Saints do today that allow Satan right into their homes. And so one of the great lessons from these war chapters is don't be a fool like the Nephites because they had all power over their enemies. So chapter 50 is the introduction to the first of the stupid things. And that is, they war among themselves, conflict within themselves. So Moroni has to take resources away from the battle against the Lamanites and squell a dispute within his own people, which weakens them. Now, they survive this threat, but the next one they don't survive, which is 51, and this is the second thing that we sometimes do, the stupid thing that we do, when we had a complete, a perfect defense against our enemies, and then we basically opened the front door. And so the 51st chapter, we have more division. We have the introduction of these people called the kingmen, and they rise up and they want to take over the government. So right in the midst of this time where the, where the Nephites are being surrounded and they're being attacked, and they're winning, they're doing really well, this division happens, and Moroni basically says, you've got to fight and defend us, or you've got to be put to death. And there's about 4,000 kingmen slain in this chapter. 
and the Nephites at this point now are not strong enough to hold off the enemies. And so Bryce is right. This, this disunity causes this fracture, and that's the real weakness. And so I think another theme in, in the Book of Mormon War chapters is this idea that unity and righteousness is more important than armaments. And so that's the kingmen. That's the beginning of this. There's going to be more kingmen. Then we get to the 50 second chapter, and I kind of skipped this over now with 51, but when I was a teenager, I loved this, the story of Teancum. Teancum sneaks in and kills Amalekiah, and so the brother of Amalekiah rises up in the 52nd chapter. So now Amaron, his brother, continues the battle, which is another message that no matter how many leaders of evil you take out, there's going to be another one that follows, and the war will continue, because the war isn't against the Lamanites. The war really was within the Nephites. If the if the Nephites had stayed united, they never would have invited the Lamanites in. So now chapter 52 and the next several, they end up trying to fight to win back their own fortified cities. The cities that the Lamanites have now taken because of their foolishness, they now have to win back. They're fighting their own defenses, which goes to show that it is easier to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. Winning back our own moral state is much harder than simply defending it and holding on to it in the first place. So chapter 53, we have that struggle now, and that's going to, con- or 52, that's going to continue in 53. It just keeps going. There's more dissensions and more losses. Moroni, he uses prisoners of war to build the forts. And then we're introduced to this new group of people called the Stripling Warriors, which leads to the 54th chapter. Now, with the addition of the Stripling Warriors, the Nephites stand a chance. And so Moroni in 54 really just, they exchange two letters, and we get to hear the insights. We get to see Moroni's heart and Amaron's reasons for this battle. So Moroni gets the, his guys back by getting the Lamanites drunk, which is another great story about the kind of attitude Moroni has. When you have your guys that you're fighting against and they're drunk and they're in this weakened position, does Moroni go in there and just kill them all? What does he do? And the answer is, well, he doesn't. And so we'll look at that. He takes a whole city. The city of Git is taken back. And then we get this epistle from Helaman, one of the big generals of Moroni's troops in the next chapter. And that's when Helaman begins to tell us the story of the stripling warriors. Now, the strategy was to use them kind of as bait, because the Lamanites are hit up in this fortified city, a Nephite city that's been so fortified, and we know what it's like to attack those fortified cities. So they run the stripling warriors in front of them. The Lamanites come out, and then Antipas comes behind them. And the plan is to just take them from both sides. But there's a beautiful moment here when the Lamanites stop. And Helaman doesn't know, well, did Antipas catch up to them, and they've engaged in a battle, or is this a trap? Have they figured out what our strategy was, and it's a trap? So they're waiting for us to turn around, they destroy us, and then they turn around and destroy Antipas. And so this is the moment where the stripling warriors have to engage or not engage. It's a beautiful moment where they say, look, we're not afraid. We're not afraid, and we're going to do it for our parents. And so beautiful chapter, which leads to the second half of the epistle. And there's a theme in here, right? At the end of the 56th chapter, none of them die. At the end of the 57th chapter, none of them die. And we get kind of this little variation in number. We go from 2000 to 2060. So I think Bryce, they picked up 60 guys. Well, and those were the prisoners, weren't they? Probably. I think those were the prisoners they pick up. But they picked up some guys and none of them die. So both chapters, 56, 57, 
story of the stripling warriors and the miracle of none of them dying. And like I said, man, and you study military history, that's pretty rare to just continually to have these units that just don't die, which leads to the 58th chapter where Moroni says, hey, we're going to use some stratagem, or I like to say strategery. They're going to use some strategery to try to figure out how to beat these guys. Yeah, and it works. And so chapter 58 is really just the, the, the battle is coming to a close they're on a roll. They've got momentum. Now with the victory of the Stripling Warriors, and so they, they take back the city of Manti, and they just keep going. So you can just feel that the, the war is coming to a close, except for we're battling ourselves. That's yeah. the real problem. While Moroni is starting to have real success with the Lamanites, he gets this epistle from Pehoran, the chief judge, saying, hey... I need your help. Well, they get this misunderstanding between them. So we've got a a few letters between Pehorn and Moroni, which leads to the next few chapters. Yeah, so in the 59th, we've got Nephites losing ground. The central government's not sending them supplies. It really reminds me of sometimes you read a little bit about how George Washington struggled with the Continental Congress, trying to get shoes for his soldiers, trying to fight the greatest army in the world with guys without shoes. And so in that letter, or excuse me, in in that chapter, he's really upset, and then he fires off this letter that's pretty fiery in the 60th chapter to Pehorin. He does. He's mad. He thinks Pehorin's just being negligent, so he fires off this letter that just ripping the guy to shreds, saying, we desire to know the cause of this exceedingly great neglect. And then he gets a letter back from Pehorin that says, look, it's the kingmen. They've taken over the government. I have no power. And I just love Pehorin's response. Pehorin has been ripped to shreds by Moroni, and basically writes back and says, man, I love your heart. I love your heart. And so beautiful little moment where we get to see the kindness of a man who's been accused of wrongdoing, and he doesn't jump back. He just simply says, bless your heart. I totally get what you're going through, but here's what's happened. And then he explains, which which requires Moroni to then turn back to the capital, and that leads us to 61. The 62nd chapter, Moroni marches his guys to put down the kingmen. They restore peace. And I love the 27th verse to 29th verse. The Lamanite prisoners get mercy, and a bunch of them join with the Lamanite converts of Ammon, which is just beautiful stuff. Like, how do you treat people that have fought against you? And there's a great message in here for us. Moroni retires his post and gives it to his son Moroni Ha. And then it's the end of the Second War, about 57 B.C. We have almost 20 years of conflict in these chapters. And then finally, the 63rd chapter is the final chapter of Alma. Yeah, it's just kind of a summary. But what's interesting is they've learned the great lesson. And so sometimes peace leads to prosperity, and prosperity leads to pride, and sometimes prosperity leads to humility. But they remember. They remember God. They remember what God has done in their lives And so they are not quick to pride, and this war has had a tremendous impact. And so we end the book of Alma on a note of peace. I love the end of chapter 62. They did remember how great things the Lord had done for them. Uh, Notwithstanding their riches back in 49, they were not lifted up in the pride of their eyes. Neither were they slow to remember the Lord their God, but they did humble themselves. Now, unfortunately, that's not going to last long, because when we get into the book of Helaman, it will be about pride again. But at least there's a brief moment at the end of the war, given all their casualties, that they remember, and they are humble, and they have peace, and God is with them. 
So, so that's the end of the war chapter. Yeah, that's it. That's just a brief overview. So what we're going to do is talk about, well, what can we learn from this? What's the point? Why did Mormon put this in here? And so why don't you lead out, Bryce? Well, let's separate the two wars, okay? Yeah. Let's focus on chapters 43 and 44, this little skirmish against Zarahemna, because it's it's often lost in the war chapters. We go right to Amalekiah, and we forget this skirmish with Zarahemna. And what I love to pull out of these two chapters is to show the rules for when is conflict justified. Because if you do it the Lord's way, you get the Lord's help. If you don't do it the Lord's way, you, you may win the conflict, but you will not get the Lord's help. This is true of individuals, of nations, of families. If you do it the Lord's way, you get the Lord's help. So there are rules. You need to understand that the Lord has set some rules for when is conflict justified. When do you sue them? When do you call the police? When do you yell and raise your voice? When do you march in and see the teacher or the principal? When do you go talk to the neighbor? When do you discipline and get involved in a conflict? If you can understand that there are three, and maybe you'll find more, but I have found three rules taught in these couple of chapters that say, if you do it this way, you get the Lord's help. This has made me a better parent. This has made me a better employee. When I'm a teacher and I have to handle a class, um, it's made me a better citizen. It's helped me understand that if you handle conflict the Lord's way, you get the Lord's help. If you don't, then you're on your own. And it may turn out positive. You may win the lawsuit, but you did it without the Lord's help. So what are the rules? You have to have the right emotion or attitude. If you've got the wrong emotion in your heart, you're not going to get the Lord's help. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Lamanites, what emotion were in the Lamanites' hearts, and what emotion was in the Nephites' hearts. So let's start with Lamanites. Look at 43.7. You'll find it again in the Amalekiah War, but look at 43.7. Name one emotion that was in their hearts as they approached this war. It's hatred. Look at verse 8, anger. If hatred and anger are in your heart, you're not going to get the Lord's help. If you're in the grocery store and your child is throwing a fit and you are filled with rage and you lash out at your child, you're not going to get the Lord's help. So what is in our heart? What should be in our heart? Let's take a look at Moroni. What was in Moroni's heart? Look at verse 13, chapter 43, verse 13. There's a fascinating word here that seems to suggest what was in Moroni's heart. And the word is compelled. In verse 14, it's obliged. They were obliged to contend. The Nephites were compelled, which means I don't want to do this, but I feel a sense I have to, a duty almost. I don't want to do this. We've got to tie this in with Alma 48 and 21, exactly. don't we? Exactly. Let's go there really quick. Can I read this? Yes. This is so good. Look and what read it says. 42 as well. As I have said, in the latter end of the 19th year, yea, notwithstanding their peace amongst themselves, they were compelled reluctantly to contend with their brethren, the Lamanites. Yea, and in fine, their wars never did cease for the space of many years with the Lamanites, notwithstanding their much reluctance. Now they were sorry to take up arms against the Lamanites. And it says it again, they were sorry to be the means of sending so many of their brethren out of this world unprepared to meet their God. Beautiful verses. They're not beating the drums of war, notching, as it were, their kills and their swords, saying, hey, we've got these guys. 
these neophytes are fighting, but they're not excited about it. Yeah. So rule number one is right emotion, right attitude, right thing in your heart. If the right thing is in your heart, that's test number one. If hatred and anger are in your heart, you failed test number one. Okay, test number two, looking at the Nephites and the Lamanites, I would suggest rule number two is you have to have the right motive or the right reason for fighting. So let's go back over some of the stated reasons for the Lamanites to fight. Go back to chapter 43 again. Notice how often we're in 43 and 44 as we teach these rules. It's right there, right there So in the 43 text. verse 8, what reason does it state that the Lamanites had? They want to have power over the Nephites and bring them into bondage. There it is. My motive is to tear you down. I want to have power over you. This is what Trunchbull says to Matilda when she says, I'm big, you're little, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it. I have power over you. You are my servant, and I want to prove that to you, that you are lesser and I am greater. That's the wrong motive. The idea of putting them into bondage in the ancient world, that's what you did, right? When Cyrus comes in and he's trying to conquer Greece and he's taking over the ancient world, you put the subject kingdoms into bondage, which means that they pay you tribute. They pay you a portion of their income. And so that's what they're doing here, I think, in this text is when they put them into bondage, it doesn't mean that they're all chattel slaves, but they have to pay tribute. Now think about how that applies today. Are there organized movements that want to have power over man and take just a little bit of their money? They want to wet their beak a little bit. In other words, if I can enslave you in some form where you have to give me your money, I own a piece of you. And then verse 10 has another one. The very end of verse 10, the Lamanites would destroy. They want to destroy. I want power over you. I want you in bondage, and I want you destroyed. If that's your motive, if embarrassment, if you're a teacher and a student is misbehaving, and you know that if you embarrass that student, he'll obey, he'll behave, and so you use embarrassment as a weapon, as a tool, you're not going to get the Lord's help. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it the wrong way because you want power and control. You want destruction. I want to hurt you. Um, verse 29 has several others. And now as Moroni knew the intentions of the Lamanites, that it was their intention to destroy their brethren, to subject them and bring them into bondage, that they might establish a kingdom unto themselves over all the land. So they want to rule over them. They want revenge. They want pain. If those are your motives, you are not going to get the Lord's help. As parents, if, if those are your motives, if, if putting them down, if hurting them, if causing them pain is your motive, you're not going to get the Lord's help. You know, I, we see this in personal relationships where there's a rift. And then I've seen this where they'll go in social media and blast their, their relationship. And I think when you do that, you're like taking it to another level. And you mentioned revenge. Look at Alma 54.24. This is Amaron. So Amalekai is now dead, but Amaron picks right up where his brother left off, and Amaron writes in the epistle. Look what he says in Alma 54.24. I am a bold Lamanite. Behold, this war has been waged to avenge their wrongs and to maintain and to obtain their rights to the government. One of his reasons is for revenge. And I think when you're filled with hatred and you're filled with anger... And your motive is revenge. And your motive is revenge. You may win, but you're not winning with the Lord's help. 
So I think that that's important, isn't it? It is. It's crucial. It's it for every one of us. But isn't that our tendency? Like you wronged me, and so I'm going to get you. That's right. And the Book of Mormon is drawing out. This is what we do as humans, but it doesn't just point out the problem. It gives us the solution. Yeah. So let's do the Nephite motive. What do the Nephites want? And I, I'm going to boil this down to three wonderful words, and we'll talk about these words a little bit. So three words. This is what Moroni wanted. This is what we as parents should want when we discipline our children. Or when I actually sue someone else, this should be my motive. Word number one is back in verse 9. I want to get it in as many times as we can in chapter 43. 43, okay. So 43, back in verse 9, he says it twice. And then in verse 30 of chapter 43, he's going to add one fascinating aspect to that word. So back in verse, third, verse 9 of 43, he says that their motive was to preserve. Preserve. If you're a teacher, your motive is to preserve the order in the classroom, preserve the, the respect that exists. If I'm a parent, my, my motive is to preserve the good feeling in this family, preserve the relationships that we've created. I'm here to preserve the family. And then I love verse 30. Oh, how I love this. It was the only desire of the Nephites to preserve their lands, their liberty, and their church. They didn't want revenge. They didn't want to destroy or put the Lamanites in their place. They just wanted to preserve what they had. So preserve would be word number one. I think that also indicates this is a defensive war. We're not going into your city to kill you. We're just trying to defend the ground that we have, right? Which is, guess what the next word is? Verse 47. Twice in verse 47. Can you guess what the next word's going to be? Defend. Defend. I will defend my child. I will defend my sister. I will defend my family. I will defend my reputation and my good name and my standing in the community. I will preserve and defend. Now I'm going to jump out of this war and go into the Amalekiah war for one more. The reason the stripling warriors joined their battle, go to chapter 53, verse 17. Now don't worry if you're not getting these references, we'll put this whole list in the show notes. But go to 53, verse 17, and why did the stripling warriors join the battle? What was the word? Well, I think the key word, one of them, is this idea of a covenant. Yes. They enter into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Lamanites, and then we're back to this, defend, to protect, protect. the land. Protect is tied to defend. Yeah. This is not an offensive war. We're going to go in and wipe you out. I think one of the things the Book of Mormon is trying to say is if you're defending your rights and your liberty and your family, the Lord will be with you. But if I'm going out and I'm seeking to conquest or to conquer or to kill, and I'm just going on this offensive campaign, I think the Lord says, hey, you're on your own. And we kind of see this later in the Book of Mormon with Mormon, where Mormon is totally, even when they're wicked, he fights with them. But when they're going, until, until they go on the offense, and when they go on the offense, Mormon's like, I can't help no. you guys, yeah. And that is rule number three. Do you see how all these are linked to each other? So rule number two is you've got to have the right motive. And I would suggest those three words describe the right motives. Preserve, defend, and protect. And going back to what Mike said, back to Alma 43, verse 47, the Lord has said, ye shall defend even unto bloodshed. Ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. So conflict may be necessary, but if you have the right motive and the right 
emotion, the Lord's going to be with you. But let's do one more rule. Verse 46 describes that rule. And this is a fascinating third rule. I love this. In my family, my children know about this rule well. We talk about it a great deal. And that is, you cannot be guilty of the first offense, neither the second. This can be kind of confusing to people. I called it the first strike and the second strike. And I'm, I played basketball, as did you. Yep. And I remember watching a guy named Bill Lambeer. And Bill Lambeer was classic. You older folks, will, if you follow basketball, you know what I'm talking about. Bill Lambeer would get in your head, and he would kind of knee you or nudge you. And then to retaliate, the guy that's been offended would come back and punch Bill Lambeer. And then who gets the foul? The guy, the second striker. The second striker. So, so what does it mean to be a second striker? So typically, you know, like in basketball, I will accidentally elbow someone when I come down with a rebound. I, just, it was just, just inadvertent. We okay? didn't mean to. Just I didn't mean to. <laughs> There really wasn't a whole lot of malice, but the guy that got elbowed, he's now filled with what's in his heart? Anger. What's his motive? Revenge. He's upset. And so we come down to the other end of the court, and what's he going to do? He's going to elbow me on purpose. Worse. That's the second (laughs) offense. It's the retaliatory offense. It's the striking back offense. It's the getting even. And that one is almost always bigger. And more elevated. In my family, my children know that we discipline the first offender and the second offender because I'll come upon two brothers who are kind of fighting. And guess what? One of them, the first thing that I'll hear when I show up onto the scene is he started it as if that's the problem. He started it. Therefore, punish him. But guess what? I know. I know that the retaliatory strike is the bigger and in our, it's almost always that the second striker gets the bigger punishment because that one was done with the wrong emotion and the wrong motive. And so the Lord, as a general rule, says, look, I can make sure that you have the right emotion and the right motive if you don't retaliate. Now, let's bring this into our day. This is the Nephites' day. Let's bring this into our day. Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants section 98, which is Jackson County. The saints have been picked on. Um, they've been beaten up, and it's Jackson County. And the Lord says, look, I'm going to give you the same rules I gave them, starting in verse 23, but he's actually going to add to it. So section 98, starting in verse 23, I speak to you uh, concerning your families. If men will smite you or your family once and you bear it patiently, meaning you didn't smite back, you're not guilty of the second offense. And revile not against them, neither seek revenge. You shall be rewarded. See, the Lord says, I'll be with you. I will be with you. If they hit you and you don't hit back, I will be with you. But notice verse 24, if you bear it not patiently, meaning you struck back, you hit back when you were hit. If you bear it not patiently, it shall be counted unto you as as being meted out as a just measure unto you. I always like to translate that by saying, if my brother hits me and I hit him back, it's like the Lord saying, yeah, you guys deserve each other. Yeah. You get what you get. You did the same thing that caused you to retaliate. You're no better. You're no better. You both deserve the punishment because you let rage be your motive and or your emotion. You let revenge be your motive. I like in verse 16 where he says, our job as saints is to renounce war and proclaim peace. War is always bad. 
But the Book of Mormon tells us that there's times when it's justified. And so I want to just make sure that we, Bryce and I don't sound like we're warmongers or we're beating the drums of war, but there's 20 chapters in here in the Book of Mormon. It's clearly important. So I think as Christians, it's important for us to understand what is the Lord saying? What does it mean to renounce war and proclaim peace? Don't be guilty of the first or second offense. But then Bryce is right. Section 98 goes into more detail. So verse 20. Explaining what it means. 25, he says, if your enemy shall smite you a second time and you revile not against your enemy, meaning I wasn't guilty of the third offense. If you are not guilty of the third offense and bear it patiently, your reward shall be a hundredfold. And then he actually goes one more and says, if they smite you the third time, and you bear it patiently, your reward shall be doubled unto you fourfold. And it's already been doubled a hundredfold. In other words, I will be with you. Now notice, your enemy has come three times. So verse 28, you warn your enemy. Verse 29, if he comes against you, even then, verse 30, if you'll spare him, even then, after what, we're we're up to what, five strikes or something like that? Even then, if you'll spare him, you'll be rewarded. However, verse 31, because you've been patient, Because you have the right motive, the right emotion, you haven't been guilty of the second offense, because you warned him, verse 31, thou art justified. He says that twice. Thou art justified, and I will be with you, and we will fight this together. The Lord says in the 32nd verse, this is the same law he's given to Nephi, Joseph, Jacob, and Isaac, and Abraham. And it's not really explained in the Bible, at least to my satisfaction. And I realize there's a lot of problems. And what I mean by that is the book of Joshua is really problematic with these principles. We're not going to lay out the problems and how to untangle the book of Joshua. But we will when we get to the Old Testament. But just know that I realize the inconsistencies here. And to me, if I had to pick between the book of Joshua and the 20 chapters in the Book of Mormon on how to navigate these issues, I'm always going to go with the Book of Mormon. I think the book of Joshua has been filtered through the apostasy, and it, there's a lot of stuff in there that isn't necessarily completely accurate. We'll look at that. I, I really like the article of faith where uh, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. So back to section 98, the Lord here is essentially saying, hey, we got to be patient and we got to bear it, and we got to do this patiently, and that's what it means to renounce war and proclaim peace. But Bryce, what if there's a guy in my house, and he's got a gun, and he's coming at me? What if I don't have time to do five forgiveness? Obviously, there is an exception. So just to see it in writing, let's see the Lord recognize, hey guys, there is an exception. If you'll turn to Doctrine and Covenants 134, verse 11, notice the Lord says, here's the general rule, however... What's the exception? And there always is. I mean, there, there was a story we had in Utah a number of years ago where this guy wakes up, and he's an older fellow, retired, and he wakes up in his bed, and there's a guy in his house with a gun pointing at his wife, and he says, I'm taking you to the ATM. We're going to clear out your bank account. And the guy literally opened up. He says, let me get my socks. And he opened up his sock drawer, and he pulled out a gun, and he shot the guy. So, so what does section 134 say about Let's read that? it. Verse 11, we believe that men should appeal to the civil law for redress of all wrongs and grievances. See, that's the, I'm not going to take it upon me to strike back. I'm going to turn it over to the police. Where personal abuse is afflicted or the right of property or character infringed, where such laws exist as will protect the same. But, okay, here's the exception. We believe that all men are justified in defending themselves. You're starting to see all these words come back justified in defending themselves, their friends, their property, and the government from the unlawful assaults and encroachments of all persons in times of exigency. 
That's the key. Where immediate appeal cannot be made to the laws and relief afforded them. There is a moment where you just defend your family. And that's what it means by in times of exigency. I don't think that's a word we use all the time. No. What's he saying? What does he mean by that? Hey, there's a situation in, you know, in an emergency where it would threaten your lives or your family or your honor or something. When you can't be patient, then move forward. You're justified. But again, there's that reluctance, right? Do you sense that reluctance? I'm only moving forward because I'm in a time of exigency. It's that reluctance that we talked about that's in my heart. But there is an exception to the second strike rule. So anyway, I really like those because it really helps me. Now, let me see if I can point out what happens when you do it the Lord's way. If you pass these three tests, go to chapter 48. We're in Alma, right? Alma, back in chapter 48. Now remember, Moroni is initially going to be extremely successful against Amalekiah. Now, it's the Nephite's own stupidity, which we'll talk about in a minute, that opens the front door and lets the Lamanites in. But Moroni is going to be initially very successful. Look at 15 and 16. If you have passed the test, if you have the right emotion, the right motive, you're not guilty of the first or the second offense, watch what happens. Alma 48, 15. And this was their faith, that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land. Yea, warn them to flee, or to prepare for war, according to their danger. And also that God would make it known unto them whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemy. And by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. And this was the faith of Moroni. And his heart did glory in it, not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good, in preserving his people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God and resisting iniquity. One of the things I like about that, Bryce, is the answer is not always violence. Right. Sometimes the answer, look in verse 15, is you have to flee. How many times in the Book of Mormon do we have the guys fleeing? Right. Sometimes it's to prepare for war. And one time it was just, just to lie there and take it. Lie there and be hit by the swords and die. But the Lord knew that that was best, and he was prospering them in the best way that he possibly could in that moment. The Lord, when he's with you, will tell you exactly what to do. Let me give you one more scripture, and I love this one. It's 444, Alma 44, verse 4. Now ye see that this is the true faith of God. Yea, ye see that God will support and keep and preserve us. I love those three words. If we will defend, protect, and preserve then God will support and keep and preserve us as long as we are faithful unto him. We've done it his way. And unto our faith, our religion, and never will the Lord suffer that we shall be destroyed except we should fall into transgression and deny our faith. That's repeated throughout the narrative. And even Brigham Young picked up on this when the saints came to the valley and he said, here we are in the mountains and the only thing that's going to take us out is our own iniquity. If the government comes and they want to root us out, if we're being true to our faith, we'll be okay. And I think this is also tied into the Christian apostasy. I think, Bryce, one of the reasons why the early Christians went into apostasy, it wasn't because of the Roman government or any type of persecution, but it was internal fractionalization. We kind of see that with the 64th chapter of the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you go to Doctrine and Covenants chapter 64, look what it says. My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil, they were afflicted and sorely chastened. 
Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. I think verse 8 of section 64, so many books of the New Testament that we could have written to explain what happened in the first couple centuries of Christianity. I really think that principle holds because it's repeated throughout these war chapters. Moroni will stand up and say, you know what, if God's with us and if we're unified, we're going to be okay. But if we're not going to be unified, we're done. And that's when they start losing, is when they start fractioning, right? Yeah, let me give you a second witness to that. Knowing that we may not know the story of the New Testament, but we do know the story of the Doctrine and Covenants, and knowing human beings, what was the main reason the Lord gave for the Jackson County persecutions? He explained it, 101 verse 6. There were jarrings and contentions and envyings and strifes and lustful and covetous desires among them. Therefore, by these things, they polluted their inheritances. It's always the conflict within us. It's us not keeping our covenants. You see that all throughout the Book of Mormon. There's a great message of if you want the Lord's help in conflict, you've got to do it the Lord's way. Because when you get the Lord's help, you, get, you, you prosper according to the circumstances. And I remind you of the three rules, just, just to summarize. Right emotion, right attitude. Number two, right motive, right reason. And then number three, it's you've got to not be guilty of that retaliation. Because you break all three rules when you retaliate. So not guilty of the second offense. And then in the, Lord, the Lord says, look, just in the spirit of the latter days, don't be guilty of retaliation, however many offenses that takes to establish. That's a summary of the first war. I, I do want to talk about, before we get to the second war, the overall formula. So this is another way to do this. If you just had a couple minutes to teach the war chapters... Before you even go there, go to 1 Nephi 14. So Nephi has his vision, and he sees this in the 14th chapter of 1 Nephi, verse 12. He says, It came to pass, I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and the numbers were few, because of the wickedness and abominations of the whore that sat upon the many waters. Nevertheless, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were also upon the face of all the earth, and their dominions upon the face of the earth were small, because of the wickedness of the great whom I saw. And it came to pass, I beheld that the great mother of abominations did gather together multitudes upon the face of all the earth among all the nations of the Gentiles to fight against the Lamb of God. And so Nephi sees a massive spiritual war in the last days, and the saints are totally outnumbered. And I think that Mormon sees this vision. He's read the small plates, and he sees one way to read this. He sees the wars that Captain Moroni is facing as a spiritual war. And so one approach to teaching the war chapters is to look at that and say, okay, in just a couple of minutes, can we see a formula for winning the spiritual war? A very small group fighting a very large group spiritually. And so with that in mind, look in the eighth verse of the 58th chapter, and it says this. In the end of the verse, it says, we did contend with an enemy which was innumerable. You couldn't count them. I think the youth of today, the saints of today are contending against an enemy that is just so huge. So what do they do? Well, back in 57, it was astonishing to the army that the stripling warriors could possibly survive without being destroyed, clearly suggesting that they were outmanned, outexperienced, and outnumbered. 
Yeah. And they were facing a foe that should have slaughtered those stripling warriors, and yet they lived. And there's the hint in that, that if we do what the stripling warriors did, our preservation will be just as miraculous against an innumerable foe. I also think a hardened professional army versus a bunch of kids that just kind of signed up. Yeah. There's something to be said there. My son works in a hospital, and he's had people who fought in World War II that he's had discussions with. And he said to me, Dad, I wish I could just sit and talk to these guys. Because he talked to this one guy who was in a flying fortress over Germany. And he said he was in this plane, and the oldest guy, the commanding officer on the plane, was 19. And there were these guys that were 17 years old doing multiple missions over Germany. And chills ran up and down my arms as I thought, the whole world's freedom was at stake. And it was in the hands of 17 and 18-year-old kids. It just blows my mind. Which is a pattern today, Mike. I really do believe that it's the youth of the church that will save the church. It's the youth of the church that will win the war. When Helaman credits the youth that says, it was to them that we owe this great victory, I truly believe that someday we will say the same thing of the youth of the church. It was to them that we owe this great victory. It's pretty awesome. Our preservation today will be as miraculous as theirs was in these chapters if we do what they did. Yeah. Yeah, so good. So these stripling warriors, what do they do? They, they're fighting against this massive army. Verse 10 of chapter 58 of Alma says, they poured out their souls to God. There's something about just going to God. God is the source of power. And so you pour out your soul and you say, I really need help. Whatever your battle is, whatever your spiritual battle, battle is, I often think that I would rather go through physical trauma than spiritual trauma, right? Spiritual trauma can be so devastating. So they pour out their souls. In the 11th verse of Alma 58, it says, God visits them with assurance, and he speaks peace to their souls, and grant, granted unto them great faith, which caused them to then hope for deliverance. And so this, it's this connection with God that brings us this strength. And so verse 12 says, they took courage and they were fixed with a determination to conquer and to maintain their lands and their possessions and their wives, their children, and their liberty. And they went forth with all their might. And so that's what happened. But the real issue is, well, what was the result? And the result is the end of the 58th chapter. If you look in verse 37, First of all, it says, it mattereth not. We trust that God will deliver us. But whatever happens, we trust him. And the 38th verse says that they're in possession of their lands, and the Lamanites have fled out of the land of Nephi. And then verse 39, the Lord has supported them. And then at the in verse 40, it says that they're strict to remember the Lord their God and to keep the statutes and judgments and commandments and to stand fast in that liberty wherewith God has made them free. And so that's the result. 58 is, in a nutshell, the, those war chapters and how to win, right, Bryce? Yep, and you've got to tie that back to Alma 444. Notice the, the same words again. The Lord has—so I'm reading 5839, and the Lord has supported, yea, and kept them. Do you remember the Lord promised to keep, preserve, and support if we are faithful unto him? And that's a beautiful summary. of the war chapters. And I think there's so many ways to apply this, the war that we're facing spiritually, or even if if you're at work and there's this coworker that's always a first and second striker, how do you approach them? The war in your life, the war in your marriage, the war in your family, the war with a child, whatever challenge you're facing. So let's jump into the actual war. Let's just set it up. If you'll turn to 46, let's just set it up so you can kind of begin to see who the players are. So we're introduced in verse 3 to Amalekiah. 
Amalekiah is, we've talked about types of Christ in the scriptures. Amalekiah is a type of Lucifer. Now watch how many ways he's like Lucifer. Verse 4, desirous to be a king. End of verse 4, seeking power. Verse 5, led by the flatteries of Amalekiah. Verse 7, dissented from the church. And then verse 8, tell me this isn't exactly like Lucifer. We see that Amalekiah, because he was a man of cunning device and a man of many flattering words, that he led away the hearts of many people to do wickedly, yea, and to seek to destroy the church of God and to destroy the foundation of liberty which God had granted. That is exactly like Lucifer. One thing I see that people have that try to destroy faith is they never replace it with something. They come and they seek to destroy, but they have no plan. And I think in our lives, if you see people like that, if all they're doing is tearing down and they're not offering solutions, be very wary, right? Yep. And then in verse 11, we're introduced to the type and shadow of Christ in these war chapters, and that is Moroni. Moroni represents the Savior here. He represents the prophet. He represents the force of good. And so he, he rips his coat and he writes, in memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, our peace, our wives, our children. He's obeying all of the rules. He's getting the Lord's help in conflict. I think this is the only verse that mentions that Moroni is angry. I think because over and over again, the text says, be careful about hatred and anger. But in this, he's pretty fired up. And I almost almost look at this as Jesus at the temple. Notice it's Jesus at the temple after braiding a whip. He's in complete control. His motive is an anger and hatred. It might be his righteous indignation that's flaring. That's kind of how I see it. But it's not his emotions are under control. It's not, a, it's not anger and hatred that's motivating him. It's almost like the braiding of the whip is the construction of the title of liberty. He's yeah. pausing and he's like, I'm just going to sit down and write this down so that I don't do something I shouldn't do. So then they go out and they, they swear the oath and they basically you know, rip his garments and say, Our, you know, we're going to rip just like Joseph of Egypt was ripped his coat. We're going to be ripped if we don't keep his commandments. So it's, again, it's that same idea that the Lord will keep, preserve, and support us. So now we turn to chapter 47, one of the great insights in the Book of Mormon as to how Lucifer is going to achieve his goal. Chapter 47 is the playbook of the enemy. It is the strategy. So let me see if I can set this up. Imagine I went into the Lamanite nation. I'm going to go in and talk to the Lamanite warriors, the Lamanite army. Can you imagine the rough, brutal, crude Lamanite warriors? And I were to say to them, in just a short amount of time, you will be led by a Nephite. You will choose a Nephite as your commander and chief. What do you think the Lamanite army would say to me? No way. Over our dead bodies, right? Do you remember when um, Lamoni's father saw Lamoni with a Nephite, how he reacted? How in the world would the Lamanite warriors respond if I said to them, you're going to choose a Nephite as your captain? No way. What if I were to say to the whole Lamanite nation, you will choose a Nephite as your king, and you will all think it's a good idea? You will choose a Nephite to be your king. What would the Lamanite nation say over our dead bodies, right? No way would they ever. What if I were to say to the queen, not only will this man be king, but he will be your husband. You will marry him. The very man who kills your current husband. You will marry him. What would the queen say? No way. Now, here's the frustrating thing is Amalekiah does all those things. 
There's so many tragic stories where I think if you could go to that person and put them in a time machine and go back to the day they got married or the day when they were innocent and say, you're going to go down this road, you're going to be in jail, you're going to be guilty of all these things, they would say, no way. Yeah. So how does the adversary get them? And this is chapter 47. And so we're going to shout from the rooftops, please be aware of how he operates. So imagine a totem pole, a totem pole that shows social status among the Lamanites. Where is Amalekiah where he first walks into the Lamanites? Where would we put a Nephite on the totem pole when he first shows up among the Lamanites? The very bottom, right? Now just watch him climb that totem pole to the very top. Watch what he does. Well, the first thing he does is he goes in there in verse 1, he starts to stir up the Lamanites to anger. You can see why he's going to use anger, right? He's going to tell them all the horrible things the Nephites are planning. He's going to stir them up to anger. And when they're angry, they're going to want revenge, and they're going to want to go to war. But verse 2, remember, they've just signed the agreement with Captain Moroni. Remember the scalp of Zarahemna? No way that Lamanite army wants to go back there. They've promised that they wouldn't. And so end of verse 2, the more part of the army would not, and they rebel. So then Amalekiah says to the king, hey, put me in charge of those who are faithful, and I'll go get them. So he just went up a notch. He went from bottom of the totem pole to commander of a small portion of the army. You see what he just did? And the king thought it was a good idea. I'll put Amalekiah in charge of the small part that were obedient. Now they go out, and I, I just it makes me mad to talk about this because I see this play out so often. The leader of the majority of the army that does not want to go to war against the Nephites, his name is Lahontai, and he's up on top of a mountain, Mount Antipas, and Amalekiah is going to talk him down. Now, verse 10 has invitation number one. Satan's going to go for broke, right? He's just going to go for gusto and see if he can get you to come all the way down. So he says in verse 10, would you come down to the foot of the mountain? And verse 11, Lahontai says, absolutely not. Like a good faithful Latter-day Saint, Lahontai says, no, I will not go down to the book. I won't go all the way. Okay. In fact, three times he says that. And then verse 12, this is what you need to understand about Satan. It came to pass that when Amalekiah found that he could not get Lahontai to come down from the mount, he went up into the mount nearly to Lahontai's camp. And then sent again the fourth time his message unto Lahontai, desiring that he would come down. Now how far down does Lahontai have to come, Mike? Not very far. Notice the end of the verse. Oh, go ahead and bring your guards with you. Make it safe. Satan says, you're in charge. You're totally in control. And right there is how he does it. Right there, my dear friends, is how he wins your children, your spouse, you, your friends. That's how he does it. He says, you don't have to come down to the bottom of the mountain. You just have to come down a little. Would you come down a little, and he makes you feel safe in doing it. He suggests that you're in no danger. There's no danger if you come down a little. And that's how he does it. And then verse 13, hey, you can be in charge. Lahontai, let's be, let's be buds, and you can be in charge. He's got a great plan. If you come down and surround my army, we'll give up, and then you'll be in charge. And the only thing I ask is that you put me as second leader over the whole army. So 
Lahontai, some of the most depressing words in all of this is verse 14, it came to pass that Lahontai came down. He went to the very place he vowed in verse 10 or verse 11, he would not go. And he does it. And he thinks it's a good idea, right? Amalekiah got Lahontai thinking that he's in charge, that everything is going according to his plan, and he thinks it's a good idea. So he comes down to the very place he vowed he would not go. I think Satan's a master at this. He gets us to lie to ourselves, to where we take off our armor, we do the stupid <sighs> right? Yeah. So it, the plan works like a charm. Lahontai comes down, surrounds them. They surrender. Amalekiah's group surrenders. Now Lahontai's in charge, and Amalekiah is number two. And then you shouldn't be surprised by verse 18. He was poisoned by degrees. And if ever there was something symbolic, that's it. He was poisoned by degrees. Now, I've thought a lot about what it means to be poisoned by degrees. And I know the human body. If you dump the whole bottle of poison in, Lahontai throws it up. The body will not accept that much poison. So what was the intent of the very first couple of drops of poison? To fool Lahontai's body into thinking it won't hurt him. And then a few more drops won't hurt him. And then a few more drops won't hurt him. And then pretty soon he can put in enough poison to kill him. That verse is the metaphor for the entire chapter. You got it. I mean, if you could literally just read verse 18 and say, there it is. Yep. And that's how Satan does it. He poisons us by degrees. I would ask everyone listening to this podcast to examine your life. In what areas have you come down a little? What are you doing today that there was a time you vowed you would never do? Have you come down a little? Did he get you to think that it was okay? It was safe. It wouldn't hurt you. That's how he does it. My friend's a pilot. I had an interesting conversation with him about the space shuttle, and he talked about the O-rings and how the weather was cold. And it wasn't that they knew it would fail, but they said, we haven't tested it outside of these parameters. And so if you stay in the parameters, it will hold. But if you go outside of that, you're on your own. And I think that's so important to see that the Lord is saying, hey, here are these standards, and if you stay in those, you're going to be okay. As soon as Lahontai came off the mountain... He was on his own. One author used this phrase called the Overton window, and it's this idea that Satan knows he can't get you radically to shift your behavior, so he just slowly moves the standard. The adversary can't get you to be deviant right away, but if he can just slowly move the line, the normalization of deviance, right? And I think that's what we see here in this chapter. There's a If you'll go back to 2 Nephi chapter 26, Nephi kind of caught that vision. Speaking of Lucifer, he says the following, He leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. It starts with a flaxen cord until it becomes a chain. So that's how it works, and I would just shout that out. Beware of Satan's tactics. Now look at the very next verse. Again, do you remember if I had walked in and told the Lamanite army that you would choose a Nephite as your captain, they would have said, no way. And yet, verse 19, they choose a Malachiah to be their leader. They, the army, appointed a Malachiah to be their leader and their chief commander. And then verse 12, I just hate verse 12 because that little parenthesis, can you picture the grin on his face? And it came to pass that Amalekiah marched with his army, parentheses, for he had gained his desires. 
Every time Satan is pulling someone I love down the mountain, he looks over at me with that grin. And I hate that grin. It's that grin that says, I got him. And that's verse 20, where he says he gained his desires. I like to think that that's Mormon's midrash. Mormon's giving us so much information that these guys don't have. And it's kind of like when you watch a movie and you're privy to information that the characters don't have. And that's really what irony is, right? All these different points of view. And so this whole chapter is wrought with irony because Mormon has his point of view, the king has his, Lahontai has his, and Amalekai has his. And that's why it's so ironic. So now we got to take out the king. you got to take out the king. Now, the king comes out to meet him with how many guards? Two. If the king had known the threat that he was facing, how many guards would he have brought? All of them. And there's the point. Amalekiah made him feel safe. And he lowered his guards. And he went out to meet him. And this is where Amalekiah stabs the king in the heart and then feigns loyalty to the king. Verse 27, right in the middle, Amalekiah pretended to be wroth. He knew how to win the hearts of his army. He pretended to be wroth. We are going to, go to, we're going to find the people who killed the king, and we are going to destroy them. Verse 30, and thus Amalekiah, by his fraud, gained the hearts of the people. So the queen writes out and says, hey, don't destroy the city. Can you just picture the—now, we don't get the queen's story, but I can just picture he went in there and just faked— that he was upset and sadness and, oh, I'm so sorry. And, oh, you, you poor queen. He was such a great man. And, and he comforted her and pretty soon, boom, he's got her. Long story short, verse 35, Malachiah sought the favor of the queen and took her unto him to wife. And thus by his fraud and by the assistance of his cunning servants, he obtained the kingdom. Yea, he was acknowledged king throughout all the land among all the people of the Lamanites. Every one of those desires he got. He is now at the top of the totem pole because he just figured out a way. All he had to do is invite them to just go out of the parameters uh, one step. Just come down a little bit. And he made them feel safe in coming down. This one won't hurt you. One drop of poison won't hurt you. And then two drops of poison won't hurt you. One look at that website won't hurt you. And boom, that's how he gets us. Now, let's turn to chapter 48, because while Amalekiah is doing that, what's Moroni doing, Mike? Tell me the opposite. And what does Moroni's preparation say that we should be doing? I like verse 7. Moroni, on the other hand, had been preparing the minds of the people to be faithful to the Lord their God. So we have the spiritual component, but then also notice verse 8. You have the physical component right? They have walls and forts, and they they place all these barricades. And I love verse 9, their weakest fortifications, he put the greatest number of men. How would you say that applies in our our life That's so hard for us to do, is to accept that we have a weak spot. I like to point out that everyone has a blind spot in their eye. Every one of us, the very back of our eyes, there are no cones and rods where the optic nerve gathers. And so there's one spot in your eye where you can't see anything. Now, luckily, your left eye compensates where your right eye spot is and vice versa. But even if you close your eyes, you don't see the spot because our brain fills it in. We don't like holes in our vision. And we as human beings don't like weaknesses. We don't like to admit that we have a weakness. 
And yet, one of the great lessons that comes out of the war chapters is you've got to acknowledge your weakness, and you've got to recognize that's where Satan's coming. Where is Satan? Where, does, where do the Lamanites attack? They attack first in Ammoniah. And the reason they attack in Ammoniah is because they've had success there. And then they go to Noah, and the reason they go to Noah is because that's the acknowledged weakest Nephite city. If you're going to have any success against Lucifer, you have to be humble enough to recognize that you have a weakness he's coming after. I think that mothers have a particular sense in their home. They know the heartbeat of their children and the heartbeat of the home. And I think because they have that, at least in my estimation, I think it's a gift they have. A lot of times they are great guardians of the weak spots. But in all of our lives, I think it takes a, a to be a man or woman of truth to really truly look at your life and ask yourself, okay, what about my life is weak? Every armor has a weak spot. Every person has a weak spot. I also like that they chose a, a, a wise man to lead them. So the 11th verse, he's preparing them physically and spiritually, but look what it says. Moroni was a strong and a mighty man, a man of perfect understanding. He did not delight in bloodshed, a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. So he was a man of balanced principles. He was a man who loved liberty, but he didn't delight in warfare. He was balanced. This is a great quote about this idea. Perhaps the character of Faramir, the captain of Gondor in The Lord of the Rings, expresses this idea best. He possesses humility as well as great courage a warrior with a grave tenderness in his eyes, who takes no delight in the prospect of battle. As such, he conveys a message that bears repeating at the present moment in a world that is no stranger to the sorrows and ravages of war. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all, he explains. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only which they defend." I love that phrase. I love only which they defend. What is this all about? In other words, what is the point of war? What are we defending? And that is the root of meaning. These chapters are just driving down this core of what is life really about? And to me, I'm going to bring it back to the family. It's about preserving our families isn't it? Yep. And so they, they, they strengthen the weak spots. Yeah. I, I find it fascinating that early in the Restoration, early, section 23, Oliver Cowdery was told, beware of pride. And what was Oliver Cowdery's downfall? Years later, pride. And yet very early, the Lord said, beware of pride. I think if you are humble, the Lord will find gentle ways to point out what areas you need to strengthen. May I suggest that you look at your strengths. Almost without fail, our strengths are tied to our weakness. Someone who's very good and very successful is going to have a vulnerability to pride. Um, Elder Downline H. Oaks gave a marvelous talk years ago that our strengths can become our downfall. But I think that's one I would shout out from these chapters is Moroni was wise enough to recognize where are the Lamanites going to attack, and that's where he fortified first. We've got to do it. I love verse 17. you got to mark it in your scriptures. It's where Mormon pays him such a compliment, and he says, if everybody was like Moroni, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. And I think it's because Moroni was a man of truth. He knew what he was defending. He was a man of balanced principles, and he had the spirit. And I think every Latter-day Saint man and woman 
can be like a verse 17. We can be like Moroni. And I think the Book of Mormon is inviting us to look at these ideas and these principles and incorporate them in our lives. I really do. So that's 48. All right, so chapter 49 is when the battle begins. Now, the Lamanites thought, hey, we're going to destroy them. We've done it before. Remember, one of the recent times we saw the Lamanites show up was when the city of Ammoniah was destroyed. So that's where they come, and they come to Ammoniah, but Moroni has rebuilt it. So then they rush over to Noah, but Moroni has done the same thing. So verse 14, the city of Noah, which had hitherto been a weak place, had now by the means of Moroni become strong. So it describes this battle. And so the one thing I want to point out in verse 49 is the armor. There's a lesson here to be taught with the armor. Uh, What verse? So let's go back to chapter 43 to the, the battle with Zarahemla. When the Lamanites led by Zarahemla showed up against Moroni, let's point out what the Nephites were wearing and what the Lamanites were wearing. So back in 43, 18 through 21, the Lamanites were armed with swords and scimitars and all weapons of offensive war. So they both have the same offensive weapons, but what about defensive? So verse 19, Moroni had prepared his people with breastplates and arm shields and shields to defend their heads, and they were dressed in thick clothing. Remember that, breastplates and thick clothing. Verse 20, Zarahemla hadn't prepared, hadn't done anything. They were naked, save it were a skin which was girded about their loins. So you've got one army wearing breastplates and thick clothing and helmets on their head, and then you've got the Lamanites which are naked. Verse 21, they were not armed with breastplates or shields. Therefore, they were exceedingly afraid of the armies of the Nephites because of their armor. So now fast forward back to chapter 49. When they come back under Amalickiah, what are the Lamanites wearing? Verse 6, the leaders of the Lamanites had supposed because of the greatness of their number, that's another point, they supposed that they should be privileged to come upon them as they hitherto done. Yea, and they had also prepared them with shields and with breastplates. And they had prepared themselves with garments of skin, yea, very thick garments to cover their nakedness. Now, does that list sound familiar? They've learned. That's the very things the Nephites were wearing in the last battle. But then you have to read verse 8. But behold, to their uttermost astonishment, Moroni had prepared them. They were prepared for them in a manner which never had been known among the children of Lehi. Now, we don't know what they were wearing. We don't know what Moroni put on them. But they were prepared for the Lamanites to battle after the manner of the instructions of Moroni. I think a lot of this has to do with their physical fortifications, the forts and the banks of earth and those kinds of things. But I'm guessing there's also a little bit more on their armor. Their bodies have a little bit more as well. We don't know what that was, but they were, I love verse 9, they were exceedingly astonished at their manner of preparation for war. So may I suggest one of the things that we fail to do is put on new armor. The battle changes. You have to adapt. May I say to all the parents out there, if you parent the way you were parented, if you teach the way you were taught, your children will be slaughtered in the battle. And that's one of the biggest problems in the church. We call people to a position, and they model how they perform in their calling the way other people did it to them when they were in the youth. There's some great tips to that, but the problem is the battle is changing. Parents didn't grow up with cell phones. 
Therefore, they don't know how to teach their children how to protect themselves from the danger of a cell phone. I think that's one thing we see right now in our culture, Bryce, is there's so many things happening so fast and there's so much change. I like to call it the fog of war. There's so much uncertainty, isn't there? Yeah. And so it becomes the duty of parents to understand the new weapons and to arm their children with the new weaponry. And I would suggest that prophets, seers, and revelators have seen for years, come follow me as a new weapon. Come follow me as a new approach. And I would suggest that prophets, seers, and revelators saw it years ago and started to prepare the church for a new weapon. And as we arm ourselves with new weaponry, we'll be prepared for the battle. But it's that failure to update the armor that becomes a major problem. So important. So that really is the 49th chapter, is their ability to defend. And there's a lot of stuff in here militarily that we just don't have time to read. But you can go ahead and read the 49th chapter where Moroni and the unity of his people, they're able to defeat him. And so at the end of the 49th chapter, they're protected. They're good to go. Not one of them. More than a thousand Lamanites were slain, while on the other hand, there was not a single soul of the Nephites which was slain. And that's the weakest city. Noah was the weakest city. So where in the world can the Lamanites go and have success? Yeah, what do you do now? And so the 50th chapter is essentially more fortification happening all in the first six verses, but we also get uh, Mormon's Midrash. Now, Mormon lives many years later, but he gives, you know, in these verses, he explains what's happening, and he says essentially this, and we see, so this is verse 21, we see that these promises have been verified by the people of Nephi, for it has been their quarrelings and their contentions and their murderings and all their inner strife, which is going to bring upon them destruction. But then Mormon gives this midrash. Look what he says in verse 23, and I find this so interesting. You're in the middle of all these wars, but you're led by a man of truth and faith, and you're united, and you're winning. Look what verse 23 says of Alma 50. There never was a happier time among the people of Nephi since the days of Nephi than in the days of Moroni. To me, I think that there's a message there that I can be happy in a world of uncertainty. I can be happy in a world that has COVID-19 and all this economic and social turmoil. I can still have inner peace. And this reminds me of that verse where Jesus says, peace I leave with you, but I'm not going to leave you the peace the world's giving. In other words, these principles tell me that when we enter mortality, it's going to be messed up. I had an interesting conversation recently with someone who said, if I was of childbearing years, would I even bring a child into the world? And I think Alma 50 verse 23 says, yeah, you can have happiness and family even in the midst of strife. Absolutely. But then they blow it. And here's the lesson for Latter-day Saints. Don't blow it. So here they have peace. Moroni has defended them. They are protected. Going back to 49, verse 23, the Nephites had all power over their enemies, and then they blow it. Verse 25, you can see it right there. And now we're in Alma 50. Alma 50 again, verse 25, it came to pass that in the commencement of the 20 and fourth year of the reign of the judges, there would have been peace among the people of Nephi had it not been for a contention which took place among them. That's mistake number one. In the middle of that peace where the enemy is down there, we forget that the enemy is to the south, and we think that the enemy is within our own house. It is the dumbest thing we do. We think that the enemy is my spouse, my child, my parents, and we contend among ourselves, and we open the front door. So they have this little skirmish between Lehi and Morianton. Now, luckily, 
Mormon solves it before it becomes a problem, but turn to 51, verse 26. Once you've opened that front door and you can't stop the flood coming in, what was the second and third city taken? You got Nephi, Nephi. the Lamanites taking Nephi, and then Lehi, and then the city of Morianton. Those are the two. I can't help but connect that. The same two cities that had the warm contention in chapter 50 are taken by the Lamanites in 51. Because they're weak and they're disunified. Stupid mistake number one we make when we are led by men like Moroni, when God is helping us and prospering us in these latter days, is we contend among ourselves. Husbands and wives forget that the enemy is outside and they think that the enemy lives inside. There's a whole other sub-story. I wish we had more information, but look in Alma 50, verse 30. This tells us about who Morianton was. It says that he's a man of passion. Now, I'm going to read my Mike Day Midrash in this, but I think Morianton's going to fit the type that Mormon's saying. He's angry. He's full of rage. He doesn't think logically. He certainly isn't a spiritual man. And then look what he does at the end of the verse. Now, was she a maid in the sense of a handmaid? Was she a maid in the sense of servant? There's a lot we don't know, but that's abuse. This is an abusive wicked man. I'm Like I said, I'm taking some liberty here, but I think Morianton isn't just divisive. He's kind of that type of person, and she does the best thing that she can do. Alma 50 verse 31, it says in Alma 30 51 that it says she fled and she came over to the camp of Moroni. There's a whole subset of lessons here. If you're a woman in an abusive situation, those two verses tell me you go to the Captain Moroni's of your life. Many times for a woman who's married or in a relationship, it's the father. The father can be that Captain Rona. If your father isn't that, you've got to find that person that can give you a safe space. These two verses say a lot to me. There's a lot we don't know. You could have a whole chapter or books on this division, but Morianton causes the division. And this, to me, isn't even the division. The big division is going to come next podcast where we talk about the kingmen. But Morianton shows us as soon... The Nephites are winning. They're not losing, but as soon as Morianton pops up, this is the beginning of their losses, which proves to me this principle that, yes, arms are important, but they're not critical. Unity is critical, right? And following God. So there's mistake number one. Now, we can introduce the kingmen and show mistake number two. So chapter 51. So in this period of peace, after 49, where Moroni has complete power over the Lamanites, and they got slaughtered, we start to open the front door in chapter 50 with contention among ourselves. And then chapter 51, and here's mistake number two. Starting in verse two, they had not long maintained an entire period of peace in the land, for there began to be a contention among the people concerning their leaders. There was a part of the people who desired that a few particular points of the law should be altered. We want to change the law. We don't have faith in Pehoran. Verse three, Pehoran would not alter the law. Verse 4, therefore they were angry and desired that he should no longer be the chief. And there arose a warm dispute concerning the matter. Mistake number one is we contend within ourselves. Mistake number two is we take issues with our leaders. I want to show you how brilliant the Book of Mormon is. Go down to verse 16. Mormon just nails the two mistakes in one sentence. And may I suggest that this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has power over their enemies until they do the same two things. Verse 16, Alma 51, 16, for it was his first care to put an end to such contentions and dissensions. I just love the language of the Book of Mormon. He just nails the two problems. 
contentions and dissensions among the people. For behold, this had been hitherto a cause of all their destructions. If you go back to verse 9, this was a critical time for such contention to be among the people of Nephi. For behold, Amalickiah had again stirred up the heart of the people of the Lamanites against the people of the Nephites, and he was gathering together soldiers from all parts of the land, arming them and preparing them for war with all diligence, for he had sworn to drink the blood of Moroni. Isn't it a coincidence that Amalickiah knows when to attack, and the attack comes when the Nephites are dissenting and taking issue with their leaders and not following the leaders of the church? This is the story. Verse 22, it came to pass that while Moroni was thus breaking down the wars and contentions among his own people, that the Lamanites had come into the land of Moroni. Verse 23, it came to pass that the Nephites were not sufficiently strong in the city of Moroni. Now, why would that be? It's because Captain Moroni had to take guards and warriors that were in the city of Moroni and send them somewhere else where Nephites were fighting against Nephites. And therefore, Amalickiah did drive them and slay many. And now the downfall. Now, once he's in, he's in. And he takes city after city. And now we have to win back our own fortified cities. And that becomes the rest of the war. Had we just held on to them, we wouldn't have to fight against them. It is easier and better to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. Kind of at the end of the 51st chapter is this notion that if I kill Amalickiah, we can end it. Now, it doesn't say that, but it seems like Tiankin kind of represents that. So he sneaks in and he kills Amalickiah. But it's kind of like cutting off one of the heads of the hydra. If I cut off one head, what happens, Bryce? Just grows right back. Yeah. It's kind of like thinking, well, I can just, if we just boycott this one particular problem, then evil will go away. No, evil exists in the heart, and evil has to be defeated at the heart, not at the head level. So he takes out Amalickiah, and guess what? The war isn't over. And the opposite is also true. When they killed Joseph Smith, one newspaper the next day after Joseph Smith's martyrdom ran the headline, Thus Ends Mormonism. Joseph Smith's death did not end the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because the church exists in the heart, not in the head of the leadership. So Amalickiah may be gone, but he's going to be replaced by his brother Amaron. And I think Tiancum is also a, a subset of this idea of offense. Tiancum ends up dying in an offensive attempt to kill the leader of the Lamanites. And so I think that's a little bit of Mormon's midrash of saying, hey, I really like Tiancum. Tiancum does a lot of great things. But I think at the end of the day, it's this unity following God and fighting a defensive war that's going to win it. Now, as a reader of the text and as a lover of adventure and those kinds of things, I love Tiancum. I think he's awesome. But I don't think the Tiancum strategy is necessarily the strategy that's going to win the war. It's this idea of being unified, isn't it? In fact, that's really what the Book of Mormon shows us. When the kingmen are put down, next podcast we'll look at this, but when that happens, we're good to go. Now, the final chapter of the podcast is Alma 52. And this is where the brother takes over, Amron, as we've said. And then Moroni and Tiancum and Lehi are involved in some skirmishes. Verse 17, Moroni saw that it was impossible that they could overtake the Lamanites while they were in their fortifications. So verse 19, they hold a council of war, meaning they need one more piece of the puzzle. They do not have enough pieces to win this war. And the one piece of the puzzle will be our main subject at our next podcast. And those will be the stripling warriors, the missing piece of the puzzle are the youth, the youth of the church.
And so that might be a good place to pause to say, okay, we've done a good job, but we've got to have a council of war because we're missing one piece of the puzzle. I do like that where they get together and it says, we don't have the numbers. We've got to flatter them out of their strongholds and take advantage of them. And one of the things I love about Moroni is over and over again, Mormon makes this point that Moroni is able to decoy them out and take possession without killing people. One of the points of these war chapters is we have to fight the war, but don't become a killer. Don't become what you hate. Fight it, but don't fight it on their terms. Fight it on yours. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he's saying a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the things he's saying is resist, but don't become the enemy that you hate. And I love that about Moroni. So I love the council of war. I love the word in verse 21. They wanted to decoy the Lamanites. Now, I've thought a lot about how to apply that, and I still don't have an answer other than we've got to not become that which we hate. And I think that's to me, one of the ways I read the text. The other thing, I think symbolically the idea is once you've let evil into your heart, you've got to get evil out. And one of the ways we do that is by light. We chase evil out with light. And so Moroni knows that I've got evil in these fortified cities and I have to get evil out. I cannot win this war until evil comes out. And I think symbolically, that's a beautiful message. Now, we don't necessarily have to decoy evil out of our hearts. We can force evil out by putting light in. But it's kind of the same idea there. Light pushes evil out. The decoy gets evil out. I also kind of think Mormon put this in here because he's a, he's a general and he recognizes, I think game recognizes game. (laughs) Mormon's got game and he's like, this Moroni guy's got some skills, yeah, he and I'm going to put this in here, right? He knows that dangling someone in front of the Lamanites would be too much for them to resist. They just can't resist How that. do I not put this in the text? I can almost see Mormon getting some chills as he's like, I got to get this in here somehow. So with that, we thank you for listening. We know it's been long. If you made it this far, you're pretty much a champion, right? You've made it to the end of this, and thanks for listening, and we're stoked to be with you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.